My name is Michael LaDuke. Um, I served in Weapons Platoon, Charlie Company, 1st Battalion, 8th Marines. Uh, I served in Iraq from June through December of 2004. Um, towards the end of October of that year, my company, as well as the other companies from a battalion, were all pretty much called into an, the outskirts of Camp Fallujah to an area called the Iraqi Training Center, or ITC. We were being marshaled there along with several other battalions from both the Army and the Marine Corps for what we found out was going to be the second invasion of Fallujah known as Operation Phantom Fury. Um, in the weeks of us training there up until the actual invasion, during that time, one day, uh, the battalion JAG officer, who's basically our battalion legal counsel, he's basically the battalion's final authority on the UCMJ, Uniform Code of Military Justice, um, he pulled us all together, made sure the embedded reporters weren't there with us at the time, and proceeded to basically give us what was going to be a rules of engagement brief that were for Fallujah. He opened up pretty much by saying, by pretty much reviewing the fact that for the previous five months we'd been in country, that the rules of engagement we operated under were extremely strict, very typical of an occupation of the security and stability operations for which we had trained. And this was all about to change, being as this was, we were going into a full-on assault into a city. Um, the bottom line was that uh, now the decision as to what hostile action and what hostile intent was would be left to the, even the most junior of non-commissioned officers. So. This is at the squad leader and team leader level, that decisions of what signified hostile intent and hostile action was. Uh, another thing that they were pushing was a tactic called reconnaissance by fire, which meant if for any reason we felt unsafe or unsure about a situation, most typically us going into clear a house or a building, that we were granted the ability based on that presumption that we could do anything we want to that house before we could ent before we entered it. That's from lighting up with 5.56 and 7.62, that from shooting rockets and calling in mortars on it, to using a tank or a bulldozer to level the house or calling in artillery or an airstrike, just on basically a whim. The battalion Jagger officer also elaborate elaborated that he had been given a $20 million allowance by command to pay out property claims from people whose property we destroyed and they wanted reparations for it. Uh, this, nothing like that ever happened, though. The, the, the character of how we can have how the invasion went made it basically impossible for anyone to do, it, to do that kind of thing. This was a really big switch from what we'd been used to for the first five months. We had gone from basically very, like, it, it was called the escalation of force to which is we to how we had to respond to a situation where basically you'd only respond to deadly force under very specific conditions. Um, but now it, it was basically we were going to be operating under the assumption that everyone was hostile. Um, he sort of wrapped up the brief by sort of going, okay, Marines, you see an individual with a weapon, what do you do? Sort of a mutter in silence for a minute, waiting for someone else to answer. And some one, one guy said, shoot him. 
battalion JAG officer said, no, shoot, shooting at a target, putting rounds downrange and suppressing a target is one thing. Setting in and killing a target is another. So again, you see an individual with a weapon, what do you do? Kill him. You see an individual with a pair of binoculars, what do you do? Kill him. You see an individual with a cell phone out, what do you do? Kill him. You see an individual who, although maybe not being actually carrying anything or displaying any specific hostile action or intent, running from, say, one building to another, or running across the street, or even running away from you, assume that he is maneuvering against you and kill him. Uh, you, you see an individual with a white flag, and he does anything but approach you slowly and obey your commands, assume it's a trick and kill him. Uh, Fallujah, we went by those ROAs. Um, fighting was fairly intense for the first few days, especially. Um, as under the whole recon by fire thing, we um, leveling houses before we even went in became pretty commonplace, using bulldozers and tanks to do the job for us and walking the rubble. Um, on top of all the destruction that we just wrought in general, a lot of extra stuff happened too. Like, if after the first few days, things began, you know, to calm down incrementally, and uh, we'd be holed up in houses and whatnot for, you know, a few hours to maybe a day or two, and we'd get bored, we'd get angry, and not be tired anymore, and just be like, let's break stuff. Um, there are other instances, stuff like, uh, we ran out of people to shoot, so we just started turning into dogs and cats, chickens, whatever's moving. Um, some guys, uh, they'd start naming the bodies that were left out in the streets for a while that we were looking at, like Rotten Randy and Tony the Torso. And um, Sometimes uh, some people would actually um, try to more accurately adjust the sights on the rifles by using the heads of people out in the, laid out in the street. Just fire a shot, if it hit too far to the left, say, and adjust the sight and shoot again just adjusting the sides off that. Um, I remember one instance where there was one, f we were on the roof of a mosque that had just been taken maybe a day before. Uh, it was daylight and uh, about not too far away, basically across the street there was a house where it seemed as though an entire family had sort of just been holed up in a basement for a while and they'd come out and it was I'd be surprised if it wasn't the whole family. There were a few, a few men, a few women, a bunch of kids. Um, it, my, to what their coming out and waving signified to me is they were trying to let us know that they were there and they were unarmed and that she should just take the situation, situation from there. One of the Marines on scene's reaction to that was to shoot at them. I don't know if he was actually specifically aiming in. None of them got hit, but they just ran back in. We never saw them again. Um, Remember stuff like hanging out in houses, and then we decided to start going through stuff, and we'd look through their family photo albums and stuff like that, and we'd look through, look at pictures of the house and pictures of the neighborhood and compare it to what it looked like now after all that had went down, and we'd have a good laugh about it. Uh, one story, I guess, kind of stands out is um, this one night we were heading out of the mayor's complex in the center of in the center of the city, um, I was attached to a squad, and we were going out to basically occupy a house as an observation point. We we're doing this in the middle of the night. The area around the Maris complex, um, the city's uh, sewer system had been damaged by bombs, and the streets had been flooded with sewer water. And that water also can 
as the fighting went on, continued to basically fill up with dead bodies as well. So it was pretty horrible. Um, the day before, um, what had happened was several people had been shot not too far outside the wall of the mayor's complex, and uh, they detained the rest of the people that they found. Included among them was this um, woman who was the wife of one of the men who was killed, and her, I believe, either uncle or father who was blind. And uh, part of what we were doing that night is on our way to this observation point, we were supposed to be escorting them back to the house. Uh, they were lagging behind. They were holding us up. We started worrying. And we, halfway there, we just sort of just left them there, standing in the middle of the flooded streets, and went on to our objective and just let them do their own thing. I joined the military originally with the intention of trying to trying to contribute something positive, trying to do something good to improve the sort of whole human situation. And I felt that Iraq, at the, I felt at the time that Iraq was a good place to do that. And I admit that I was very young and naive at the time, and I was wrong. I. Uh, I really won't say that I'm overly wrought by anything that happened. For the most part, my service in the military can be characterized by... So there were some times where I actually got to do what I wanted to do, and I got to do what, you know, I felt good about myself a few times. For the most part, I was just doing what I had to do, and that was all of us. Whether that was breaking the rules or following them, whether I was doing what I thought was right or doing what I knew was wrong. Michael LeDuc, former Marine who'd served in Iraq, receiving a standing ovation for the testimony that he offered as part of the panel Racism and the Dehumanization of the Enemy here at Winter Soldier. This broadcast is coming to you from Pacifica Radio. Hello, everybody. My name is Brian Kassler. I served four years with 2nd Battalion, 6th Marines, Fox Company. We're an infantry unit. What I want to talk about is some of the smaller things that occurred very frequently throughout my three combat tours. These are the things that I left out to the letters home and I rarely mention because it's not something I'm proud of. Whether I participated or I witnessed it, I never stopped it. When I first arrived at the fleet after completing infantry training, I checked into my unit and we had our first company formation. This is something that I didn't think about until I had made friends with a few people in the unit but our first platoon was a segregated platoon, and nearly 90% of all minorities in the company had been moved to first platoon where white leaders were put in charge of those minorities as squad leaders and platoon sergeant. The, the real separation here is, is more than race. It's, it's the dehumanization of individuals through devaluation of their worth and in the Marine Corps, as an infantry unit, you separate yourself from everybody else by thinking of all other Marines as pogues, which are people other than grunts, and then yourself as infantry. And somehow you have more value than those other people. And this carries on to later stories. Just some common things that um, you'll face in your daily non-combat environment is uh, if you're in an office and it's the morning and 
you're walking by maybe one of your staff sergeants and you say, good morning, staff sergeant. Well, I guess the, the common response in the civilian world would be like, well, good morning to you too. But in the Marine Corps, you get, er, kill babies. And that's motivating. That's not meant to be funny or that's meant to motivate you and, you know, start off your day with, er, kill babies. And this isn't something that just happens once. It, the Marine Corps is filled with one-upsmanship to say the most dehumanizing, the most racist, the most offensive thing, and to enjoy it while you're doing it. Some of the other smaller things went into Iraq, and my experiences were mostly uh, a positive reception by the Iraqi people. We were mostly vehicle-mounted and pushing forward, and when we weren't vehicle-mounted, we were in uh, obscure bases that only uh, a small amount of nomads would come by and interact with us. But while on these convoys, I saw Marines defecate into MRE bags and throw them at children on the side of the road, urinate into bottles, throw them at children on the side of the road. While stopped, take out their MRE bag, remove the chemical packaging that is activated by water, activated by moisture. This is what Marines use all service members with MREs used to heat their MREs as a moisture-activated chemical heater. They would remove the chemical heater from the warning package that's a do not eat with a symbol of a person and a X sign through them saying, you know, do not eat this. And they would give that to Iraqi children to see the responses on their faces. Eventually, our last... Our last point of settling uh, during the invasion was in Babylon. While there, I saw the destruction of the Babylonian ruins. I saw people take away chunks of it to bring it home. I saw the complete lack of understanding and just disrespect for the ruins with people driving Humvees up, up slanted walls so they could drive the Humvees extremely fast down the walls to get a little joyride while nobody was around. Other things I experienced was I was on post one day and I noticed all these MREs, but they were slightly different. They were bigger and they were yellow. I didn't know what these were and we hadn't been uh, receiving food uh, at the rate that we were consuming it. So we were at a ration level and these MREs were just sitting in the open. So I go over there and I grab one and I give a few to my buddies and uh, I start to, you know, wonder about what these are. These are, and as I'm, I'm eating it, I start reading. And these are humanitarian MREs that the Marines were keeping to feed themselves instead of giving to the Iraqi people that they were supposed to be sent to. We didn't have a clearly defined mission except keep pushing forward. And when you don't have a clearly defined mission, that mission just be, becomes to come home alive, to survive. And Marines will have nothing more than to do one thing, and that's to one-up each other by using their training. And when you become stagnant and the mission becomes survival, Marines are going to use their training on Marines around them or on the civilian population. I saw this happen countless times that our, our training for protesters, violent, violent situations were used on unsuspecting civilians because there were no rules, and this was perpetrated by squad leaders and platoon sergeants, and 
if anyone's going to charge you with anything, it's going to be them. And if they're doing it, then you, you know you can get away with it. And it happens. It happened all the time. During my second combat deployment, I was deployed to the United States Embassy in Kabul, Afghanistan from 2004 to 2005. This is not a normal role to guard an embassy as an infantry unit. This is usually carried out by Marine security guards, also known as MSG. At this point, I had been in the Marine Corps for a couple years, and it had become apparent that minorities in our unit, for whatever reasons they be, were not being promoted at the same rate as non-minorities. And the ones that did get promoted were exceptional. They would have been promoted no matter where they were because they went through meritorious boards. They, they were some of the, the brightest and best Marines I've ever worked with. However, while in Afghanistan, this was the point where we were told we were going to become leaders, that we were going to step up and start taking the leadership positions. Well, one of the first things we did as leaders is we had to go to a range. And, get to, and to get to this range, we would drive in white vans. The area was not very unstable. These vans were not very secure vans. They were thin aluminum walls, and it, it was not meant to protect us. But the point of the matter is, is that we would be unsupervised because we were the leadership. You know, We were supposed to be the supervision. Well, this was more viewed as a time to have some fun with our unsupervision and, you know, do what boys do. So people who didn't even have licenses back in the States or know how to drive stick were now driving these vans through the crowded downtown streets of Kabul, Afghanistan at extremely high speeds, at the fastest the vehicles would go, driving in oncoming traffic, driving between the two lanes, pushing vehicles out of the way. And on one occasion, a man was killed for coming through an intersection at uh, speeding vehicles. He was hit by the vehicle. He was not shot. Our, our vehicle hit this man, and we kept driving. I, I, know, I do not know if his family received any reparations or any repayment from the U.S. government. At another time, one of the drivers without a license, uh, while going through one of the main circles in the city, hit a uh, man and his donkey on a cart. And, you know, we talk about it here. You, you take away something as simple as one vehicle or your donkey, that's an entire family's livelihood. And that, that, family, <laughs> that family could have been ruined by this small one incident. Finally, I'd like to talk about my third deployment, and that's to Iraq again in 2005 to 2006. We were stationed in downtown Fallujah at the mayor's compound. Talking again about devaluization of Marines around you, we were told um, we would be receiving one sappy plate. And that was because the Marine Corps couldn't afford back sappies. So it was my job to issue out these sappies. And every day people would ask me, where are the back sappies? And I, I would have to look them in the face and say that, well, the Marine, Marine Corps says we don't have enough money for back sappy plates right now. Another incident I saw in just the devaluation of life of other Marines was one Marine didn't have a gas mask the entire deployment. 
the rest of the company did, but this one Marine did not. And he repeatedly requested for a gas mask, and his requests were just ignored and pushed off to the side because the command did not like him. Now, I'm not saying there were chemical threats. I, I didn't experience any myself, but when the other 100-plus Marines are walking around 24-7 going to the bathroom with their gas mask, you kind of want one yourself. Just another, another little devaluation was the importance of documents in the mayor's compound to the Iraqi people. We had a couple of Marines that were being punished, and one of their punish punishments was to remove all this paperwork from the top four of the mayor's compound and bring it down into our dumpsters while in full gear. This took hours for them to do, and I think it might have spanned across days, actually. Well, after all the paperwork was gone, I finally had a chance to sit down with my interpreter and just ask, you know, what was all that paperwork? Well, come to find out, we destroyed all the birth certificates of the city of Fallujah. I'd also like to talk about an important story um, a lot of my fellow IVAW members around me shared, and that was the realization, a moment where you realized you were only affected by American casualties and not Iraqi casualties. And one of, one of the roles I filled was basically a 911 service. I was on an ambulance that would rush to pick up wounded in the city and we were, we were told that there were Iraqi wounded, possibly they were the police or the Iraqi um, the Iraqi military training. Well, I was all excited because uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a very exciting time. I mean, you talk to anybody that works on an ambulance or is an EMT, your adrenaline gets going, and we're rushing out there, and our vehicle's slowing down, and we're pulling up, and there's a mass of people around a bloodied area and a blown up vehicle. And as we are slowly pulling forward to get into position, I see some desert boots and then I see some digital desert camouflage. And I'm like, I'd, I didn't know that the Iraqi military had this. And then we pulled farther forward and I realized that it was just another Marine that had been wounded. He wasn't part of our unit. He was just on a convoy going through the city. But this was the first time that I was affected uh, in such a way that you know, I was excited about what we were doing, and then a second later I was terrified, and it was only because that was an American wounded and not an Iraqi wounded. I'd like to sum up what all this, what all my statements have to do with, and that's an un undefined mission and a lack of positive peer pressure. Negative peer pressure is rampant in the Marine Corps. It's probably rampant throughout all the military, but it's especially rampant in the infantry and in the Marine Corps. And when you have, <laughs> when you have neither of those, the only mission that a Marine infantryman knows <laughs> by heart is the mission of a Marine Corps rifle squad. Locate, close with, and destroy the enemy by fire and maneuver or to repel the enemy's assault by fire and close combat. And that's what you're going to do. You're going to use your training and you're going to use that one mission that you know verbatim by heart with your eyes closed while you're asleep and you dream about it. And you train every day and you went through three months of boot camp and three months of infantry training and you train 
between deployments and during deployments to carry out that mission. And when your mission is not defined, you're going you're gonna to use that one mission that you have defined, and you're going to use those skills that you have to handle hostile people, not friendly people, not people that are looking for your help or looking for your hand. You're going to use that training that you got. And it, it absolutely becomes that you, all you have is hammers and everything you find is nails, and you're going to crush it. You're going to crush every nail that you find, and we're crushing the Iraqi people with the training we're giving and the unsupportive nature that's around us in the military. Thank you. Former Marine infantryman Brian Kassler offer testimony here at Winter Soldier as part of the Racism and Dehumanization of the Enemy panel, WarComesHome.org. My name is Matt Childers, former corporal of the United States Marine Corps. I served two deployments to Iraq with 1st Battalion, 4th Marines, Charlie Company, 2nd Platoon. I was in the infantry. The first deployment started just before the initial invasion of Iraq in May of 2003 and then and lasted until September. The second deployment lasted from May 2004 until February 2005. Uh, there's a few instances I want to speak of regarding the dehumanization of the Iraqis. Um, I have a few scenarios, but um, these things happen on an almost daily basis. Between April and August of 2003, 1st Battalion, 4th Marines was occupying a pistol factory in Ahilla. Um, and my platoon was tasked out with detainee watch along with some Marines from the regiment. These detainees, there's three of them, they were in our custody for about a week. Um, over this week, these guys were beat, beaten relentlessly <clears throat> and humiliated, teased with food and water. Um, they, were, they were begging the Marines for food and water, and um, the Marines would mock them, um, throw water in their face. The detainees were flexi-cuffed um, by their wrists behind their back, <clears throat> and they were blindfolded. Um, so then they, the Marines were screaming at them to get up, and then they'd trip them down on their face. They couldn't break their fall because they were tied up. And um, the Marines were showing the Iraqis pornography, which was strictly taboo to their religion, and they made this very obvious to us. Um, I saw a Marine take the hat off of an Iraqi. He shoved it down the back of his pants and wiped himself with it, and then tried to feed it to the Iraqi who was blindfolded. And because they were, he was desperate for food, he actually tried to eat it. Um, another situation, oh, well, let me get back to that. These, these guys were in our custody for about a week, and I didn't see them eat the whole time. I wasn't around them 24-7. I, I don't know how long the posts were, but um, I didn't see them eat or sleep at all. Um, I remember the Marines taking this guy out to use the restroom, and I, I can't remember what the proper terminology is for the type of gown that they wear, that the men wear in Iraq, 
but because he was he was flexi cuffed, um, he was trying to squat to use the bathroom to spread open his gown, and the marine was kicking him in the ankles. I remember his ankles were bloody and shoving him over while he was trying to use the restroom, telling them that he should stand up and urinate like a man. Um, another another instance is a separate EPW. Um, I'm not sure what month this was. We were stationed at an oil refinery in Iraq. This was still during the first deployment. And I remember uh, our squad had a detainee in the back of a seven-ton, and he was also flexi-cuffed, had a sandbag over his head, and he was beaten relentlessly, getting kicked in the face, boot, boot laces to the face, um, the fingers smashed with the rifles and um, our boots. Um, during both tours of Iraq, there was an obvious and intentional dehumanization of the Iraqis especially during the first deployment. I don't know, I don't know how many times. Um, and this, this term was used by the entire chain of command and was used with our training. Uh, and I think the use of the terminology proved effective in dehumanizing them because we were just so disrespectful. Um, if uh, just patrolling down the streets, um, if anyone got too close to our formation, we would use that as an excuse to mess them up. The logic behind this was um, possibly, you know, we could be carrying a bomb, which has happened in the past, but um, anyone who to turned the corner and ended up within our reach um, suffered consequences. Uh, During both tours of Iraq, it seemed like we raided countless residences. I couldn't even begin to give you a figure. Uh, most of the time, we'd show up like 3 o'clock in the morning, early hours of the morning, um, bust in the house, raid the house, systematically clear every room, pointing semi-automatic and uh, automatic weapons in their faces and screaming at them in a language that they don't understand. Um, I don't know where the intelligence was coming from for this stuff, but we barely ever found anything in these houses. Um, a lot of times they're just homes of families, and we throw everyone out on the front, on their, out of their own homes in the front yard. Um, yeah, this, ha this happened countless times. If we did find anything, we may find an AK-47, which before the American occupation was legal for them to have, um, you know, their weapon laws are obviously very different. Um, I remember one raid that we did on a house, and there was an elderly man laying on the floor, and our squad leader was yelling at us to get this man up, and we were screaming at this man, and he's obviously very old and ill, and the Marines began kicking them, kicking the man. Um, during EPW searches, or during the, I'm sorry, not EPW searches, but searching the people um, that were taken out of their homes, a lot of times the, the Marines were very rough with them, 
would hit them in the genitals and, or poke them with the muzzle of the rifle. Uh, last thing I want to say, last point. Uh, this was also at the pistol factory in the first deployment in Ahilla. I was on an entry, I was on the front entry checkpoint to the forward operating base and uh, with a fellow Marine. And we were having a conversation. We weren't really paying attention that well. And then we looked in front of us, and there was a man like 15 feet away carrying a baby, and all the baby's skin was burned off. And he was very upset, and he was wanting, he was wanting medical help. And uh, he was saying that the explosion was, was a result of our ammunition somehow. I, he, he barely spoke English, and we didn't speak any Arabic. So we tried to call the corporal of the guard, um, which is in, who's in charge of all the people that are on post. And we told him our situation. And he told us to make the man and the baby leave. And we, um, I think, I don't even think we did that right away. There was like a 10 minute period where we just kind of didn't know what to do. You know, it would be really hard to tell this man to walk away. So we called the corporal of guard again in case he didn't understand the severity of the situation. And, um, and he told us to leave, and then he ended up actually coming out to help us escort this man away. Um, I have no doubt in my mind that the baby's injuries were a result of coalition forces. Because, um, I mean, all of Iraq is riddled with unexpended, our unexpended ammunition, mortars and bombs. Our own training tells us that they use this against us to, to make the roadside bombs. So, um, you know, there's no doubt that it's out there. Um, after going through the process of boot camp, I was proud of myself and believed I was doing the right thing. And they have a way of making you look up to people. And uh, they have a way of instilling pride within yourself for what you're doing. They also joke with you and sing cadences about killing people. And um, these things put pressure on the individuals to be the stereotypical Marine, to be ruthless and merciless. Uh, that's all I have to say. Thank you. Moving testimony by 24-year-old former Corporal Matthew Childers. The audience of veterans are giving him a standing ovation. This is Winter Soldier 08, brought to you by Pacifica Radio. Hello. My name is Sam Lynch. Uh, I went in, came in the Army in 1994 as an infantryman and did active duty for a little while. And uh, 1997, I became a conscientious objector. But I opted to stay in the military and, and transfer into medical services. Uh, after getting out of active duty, I went to the North Carolina National Guard, and I deployed with the North Carolina National Guard to Iraq from February 2004 until December 2004. Uh, we were we were occupying the area uh, of eastern Diyala province, which is is on the Iran-Iraq border east of, uh, east of Baghdad. I was out of Camp Caldwell, uh, which was about five to ten miles east of a, a small town of Balad Ruz. While I was there, I had uh, various duties to range from uh, being a field medic on convoys and, and whatnot to being a, uh, a more clinical medic. Um, the, 
the rest of the uh, IVAW friends here, they've really covered a lot of areas very well. So I think what I, I want to to focus on during my my time of talking is the medical response to the Iraqi people. Uh, in May of 2004, when we first got to to our, our base in late February, early March, we were occupying an area that really didn't have a lot of uh, U.S. military forces at the time. It was a Iraqi training base, and we had an operation out of there as well. So there was no established detention facility and no SOP and really really nothing to to establish a, a, a practice of care. Uh, late April, early May, I became the supervisor for the detainee medical program. Um, I was a specialist, uh, rather low rank. It just turned out that I knew two or three phrases in Arabic and no one else really wanted to do it. So I, I developed a SOP to provide a daily sick call for the detainees where medical personnel would go down every day at a certain time and do a face-to-face -face with each detainee and see how they were doing and treat any, any medical conditions that they may have. My original, my original uh, operations plan called for a medical professional to go down, all, either a PA or a doctor, to go down as well. First day when this plan went into effect, the doctors refused to go. Um, throughout the next eight months, there were out of uh, probably approximate 15 doctors in our clinic, there were three doctors that would go to see the detainees. So it became a situation where the, the medical, the medics did most of the medical care. Uh, and most of the, the things that were seen were headaches and backaches and things that could be treated rather easily with Tylenol or Motrin. But there were uh, uh, urinary tract infections, there were hernias, there were things that really did require a doctor's care. And when I confronted doctors with it, uh, in at least four cases, four different doctors responded that we're not going to see them because they're not American. Um, our detainee facility was a 72-hour a, a TOPS detainee facility where they would bring the locals in who were being detained and decide whether or not they had enough evidence to push them forward to a larger detainee facility such as Abu Ghraib or, or I think there was one in Tikrit as well. Um, so we only had them for a, a very brief period of time. Um, some specific instances, we, early on there was an uh, individual who had blood clots uh, in, in, his, uh, in his lower legs, and it was a, a, a fear that a blood clot would loosen itself and become lodged and cause a stroke. So we had him on Lovenox shots to twice a day to cut out the blood clots. Uh, and I had to, at this time, it was right when the, the, this 
operation was starting. So I was still going through and getting doctor's signatures on prescriptions. And I had to do it day by day. So depending on who the doctor on duty was depended on whether or not this, this person would get his medication or not. Uh, towards the end of the rotation, it got to the point where the medical personnel were writing the prescription. Not the, not the doctors, but the medics themselves were prescribing medicine for the detainees because nobody else would do it. Um, going into the detainee center, when we did a initial assessment of, of all the detainees, there was a, a tendency for the MPs who ran the detainee center to want to identify the detainees by what they were being arrested for. And so instead of it being an, an individual, they lost their name, they became a number, and it became 30-0024, for example, try to bomb U.S. soldiers or is targeting uh, uh, translators. Really, they lost their identity in that process, and it was really hard to maintain a unbiased attitude towards caring for them when the first thing you hear about them is what they're there for. But as it turns out, there was a high percentage of the people who were detained that were just released because there was not enough evidence on. And I don't have an exact number, but during the time that I was supervisor, we saw approximately 225 detainees, and I would say that at least 60 or 70 percent never, never had enough evidence on. Um, the this medical neglect actually started to to transcribe out into the other elements of of Iraqi people, the Iraqi workers on the post. We uh, they would be doing construction work and have an injury, and they would be refused treatment. The translators, there was a translator who I worked with quite often who. Uh, developed a hip problem and tried to get him an x-ray and, and the doctors refused treatment on him. Um, there was just a, a lot of a lot of neglect and it, it it's a situation that I felt at the time that I should have said something and I didn't and being in charge I I feel a lot of guilt because I I didn't say anything at the time, and I, I really feel that I did an injustice to these people by not not demanding that that the doctors actually see them, and and instead trying to to do the doctor's job, me and the other medics on our own. And I believe that's all I have. Testimony offered by Sam Lynch, a former Army medic, conscientious objector who served in Iraq. And you are listening to Pacifica Radio's live coverage of Winter Soldier 2008, live from the National Labor College outside of Washington, D.C. I'm Aaron Glantz with Amy Allison. Uh, if you're just joining us, we're here all weekend, and you can... Uh, 
listen and blog with us at warcomeshome.org. We're just preparing uh, to watch a video of Iraqi testimony, and I will translate from the Arabic. Once in March of 2005, the man says, there were seven young men fighting in the U.S. forces, shooting them with mortars. On that day, the Americans prepared a trap for them because they shot at them from the same place repeatedly. So they captured them and killed them. I saw them when we received the corpses in the Adamiya District Police Station. And they were mutilated. It was an after-death mutilation, stabbed and injured. Their delivery to the police station was really fast. They were killed at about 11 a.m., and we received them at 1 p.m. So it's impossible to be done by others. He's asked if he ever witnessed any civilians being tortured by the American military. I've never been arrested, he says. But once they attacked my house to arrest my little brother. That was on the 4th of April, 2007, at 2.30 in the morning. And it lasted until 5 in the morning. They attacked us in a very stressful way. They exploded the outer door with two bombs. Our wives and children were in bed. And we too were scared. They captured me, my father, and my brother. They wrapped up our hands to be sure that my hands turned blue. And they dislocated my shoulder. Then they started to beat us, accusing us of weapons possession, calling us terrorists. And then they took my brother and went away. Did they find any weapons, is the question? No, not even a bullet. He's asked, have you ever been threatened with death or humiliation? Yes, my mother was holding a little bag, he says, containing all our possessions, about $13,000. They made her choose between raping our girls and giving the money away. So she was forced to give the money. And they also took all our cell phones. Our blankets and even our clothes. Who made this threat is the question. The American soldier told the interpreter and the interpreter told my parents, he says. They stayed from 2.30 in the morning until 5 in the morning. 
they used stress positions. The target was my little brother. When the accuser pointed at him, they started beating him. All the blood came out of his face, head, and every part of his body. He's asked if he was threatened. When they asked him about raping his girls, does he think they were serious about it? He says, allow me to ask you back. Did this happen before or not? We expect it to happen because it happened before and it may happen again, he says. And who did it before was not even punished at all. Like that little girl who was raped, killed, and burnt with her parents. So I was 90% sure they would do it. Because we didn't see any humanity in them, only cruelty. Did they beat your father too? Yes. And he is 60 years old. And they beat him strongly. And who stole the money? He was taken from my mother, received by the interpreter, handed to the American soldier. Sure, my parents speak excellent English. And they told the general that it's our money. So he answered, choose between your money and your honor. So we brought out our honor with our money. That was the voice of Mohammed Amr, a resident of Adamiya in northern Baghdad. I speak for a man who gave for this land Took a bullet in the back for his pain You've been listening to highlights from the second day of testimony from Winter Soldier, Iraq and Afghanistan, anchored by KPFA's Amy Allison and Aaron Glantz. The broadcast producer was Esther Mania, and its engineers and technical producers were John Almela, Michael Yoshida, Najee Mujahid, Rose Katabchi and Michael Manucheri. These highlights were produced by Sasha Lilly. With his mind.